when a group of nine college kids set out on a hike for a place known to the local Mansi people as Death Mountain, no one could have predicted what happened next. I'll give you a hint. The place is called Death Mountain. Okay, who wants to hike that? It's obviously Death Mountain, right? And I'm gonna save you guys a lot of trouble and tell you what happened here. They were obviously attacked by Yetis. Yeah, not just one, multiple Yetis. No doubt killed all of the people in Dyatlov Pass. You don't believe me, do you? It's either Yetis or it could be aliens. Could be aliens. Could be, hmm, it could be aliens who are teaming up with the Yetis, okay? And then they made it all look like an accident. Somewhere in there is the truth, okay? I think I'm really starting to hit on it. No, 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 don't turn up the music. I'm not, I'm not done. I, I, I swear to God, I can't get a word in. No. Okay, so let's set the extremely icy stage here. It was the end of January 1959, and a group of 10 college kids who were all going after a certification decided to make the long, harsh trek through the Ural Mountains of Russia. That's right, I said 10, eight men and two women. They departed on January 27th with 10 members in tow. The group was headed by 23-year-old Igor Dyatlov, which the pass is named after, spoiler alert. But Dyatlov was an experienced hiker and a radio engineer. In fact, all of the group were grade two hikers, whatever that means in Russia, and upon their return would become grade three hikers. Watch out now, getting a new belt, which at the time was the highest, certif the highest certification you could earn, apparently, okay? But the very next day, things would start to go a little off course as one member of the group was forced to turn back before the hike really even got started. And that was 21-year-old Yuri Yudin. Probably thought he had really shit luck growing up, honestly. He suffered with radic radic radicalitis? Radicalitis, I hope I'm saying that right. But it's basically a compression of a nerve root as it exits the spinal column. And this is something that he's been plagued with since a very young age. So he decided that day, after riding on a truck to the small town called Vizhai, where they were to start their hike, Yuri's sciatic nerve inflamed, and the pain became just too much for him to bear. Yuri decided to return home and wait for his friends there. Yuri Yudin would become the only survivor of the Datlov Pass group. The rest of the group headed out, leaving Yuri behind. Yetlov promising to send a telegraph when they returned to the Vizhai somewhere around February 12th. Implying that the trip might take a little longer than they expected due to the weather. Here's a diary entry from Datlov's diary from the first night they were there. It says, Today we spend our first night in the tent. The guys are busy with the stove. With some things completed and others not, we sit for dinner. Once we're done, we make our way inside the tent. Nobody wants to sleep by the furnace, and we agreed that Yurka Kree will sleep there. After two minutes, Yuri moves to another place, cursing. We can't fall asleep for a while and argue about something. End quote. The next few days, the group seemed to be making good progress, even with the harsh weather and terrain. Then something happened on the night of February 2nd that sent the group running from their tent and into the freezing darkness, 
some of them without even having shoes on. Now, not only did the group spontaneously leave their campsite, but they left in a hurry. They cut out of their tent from the inside, and it was the only tent they had. But they had also left behind all their gear. All of this was discovered on February 26th, six days after the start of the search and rescue for the Datlov group. The tent was found sticking out of the snow, and most of the group's possessions were still there too. But what wasn't there was the hikers themselves. Searchers found evidence that suggested the group walked down the mountain towards a small tree line. When they followed them, they found the remains of a fire beneath a large pine. Then they saw laying in the snow were two of the missing hikers. They were wearing only their underwear, and their shoes were gone. They were less than a mile from their campsite. Three more of the group were found within 300 to 600 meters from the tree line and seemed to be trying to return to the tent. It appeared that the group may have split up at some time. The remaining four hikers were found about three months later. They were further into the woods and had dug a shelter into the snow. They were also found wearing the clothes of the other hikers. Investigators believe after each hiker perished, the remaining hikers took their clothes in an attempt to stay warm in negative 26 degrees Celsius weather. But unfortunately, most of the hikers were found to have died from hypothermia anyways. But a later investigation revealed that three of the hikers died to the, due to their injuries, as all of them were found to have internal injuries of some kind that appeared accurate with those of a car accident, or possibly being hit by a shockwave, or even a bomb. They had broken ribs, broken bones throughout extremities, and some had injuries to the skull and face, and bruising all over. But no damage was found on the soft tissues on the outside. Investigators blamed, quote, a compelling natural force as the cause of their injuries. When the bodies were found, some were missing eyes and a tongue, one in particular, but most of what I read about seemed to agree that it was due to the body being found next to a small stream. And the body was face down in the water. So organisms, small organisms could have fed on those soft tissues which were being preserved in the water. I mean, I guess that's what, that's what they're trying to say here as an explanation. The tent was found half torn down and buried halfway under snow. But remember, it had been there since the 2nd and the searchers didn't find them until the 26th. The area was hit several times with snowstorms between then and between those two times. You understand what I'm saying? And the group knew this. They knew that this time of the year was the harshest for the Ural Mountains, and they knew that when they departed, and they welcomed the challenge with exuberance, hoping the adventure would give them the hard-earned title that they so yearned for. Perhaps they saw it as a badge of honor to take on, quote, Death Mountain, in the deepest of winter and harshest of conditions, then there would be nothing they couldn't conquer. I understand. I understand the reasoning for going on this hike. I do. It's not something I would necessarily do myself or jump to, especially not in the harshest terrain, in the harshest season. But I understand. I understand the feat and wanting to live through that feat and conquer it. But the Dyatlov Pass report was finally released by the Russian government, and it seemed to create even more questions than it answered. 
it cited several mistakes made by Dyatlov as the reason for the group's fatal choices. They had started hiking late in the day, although they had little daylight left, and there were high winds in the area. The report also said Dyatlov had taken the wrong trail and was off by about 500 meters. The trail he chose was steeper and more difficult to climb, slowing the group down significantly. Also, there was a small amount of radiation found on some of the hikers' clothes. But there were reports by other witnesses of floating orbs uh, in the skies at night. There were two separate reports about this. Um, and I guess they're trying to link this to the radiation. But this area was also known for Russian missile testing, if I'm not mistaken. So there could be leftover radiation in this area in general. At least small amounts. See, the, the orbs, that was the final words of the Russian government in 1959. Which not many accepted as truth. In fact, one report said a total of about 75 different conspiracy theories have come out surrounding this very case. Some of the most popular are that the local Mansi people killed the hikers because they were trespassing on sacred land. However, no sign of anyone besides the hikers was ever found around the campsite or around any of the bodies. Another theory is that the Russian government tried to hide the fact that they were responsible, whether intentionally or not. The orbs of lights seen that night were believed to be missiles by some of the witnesses. So, it was that too. And eventually the military would own up to testing missiles on that very night. And they have a test area near Death Mountain. Man, gosh dang coincidences just keep piling up, don't they? But they also claim none of their missiles would have been close enough to affect the hikers. Of course, you have to claim that, right? I mean, that sounds exactly like someone who was trying to cover something up would say. <laughs> and of course, we have to remember the mindset of the time. Everyone was paranoid and afraid of everyone. The game was spy versus spy in the time of the Cold War. So of course, there were theories that some of the members were actually KGB agents and were on a mission to deliver radioactive materials but some reason ended up killing the rest of the group and aborting the mission or dying themselves. Another popular theory is, of course, the Russian Yeti. I guess the theory is that he attacked them while they slept, so they tore out of the tent in their underwear and ran single file down the hill in hopes of escaping a Yeti in the area where he most likely lives in the woods. That makes no sense. Why the hell are you going to run into the woods with a... I'm not even gonna, I'm not even gonna, not even gonna humor that. I'm not. Uh, okay. I lied. I'm gonna humor it. My problem with this is that if this is true, the Russian Yeti is just a giant asshole. Okay? Hear me out. He did not attempt to eat or even pursue the hikers. He left all the camping gear, so he wasn't trying to rob them. He's literally just like a thrill-killing Yeti. Also, there were no damage to the soft tissue. If they were killed by a Yeti, I'm pretty sure they would have some damage to the outside of their fucking bodies. Like, why, why, am, I, why am I humoring this? For, for content, Michael. That's why you're doing it. This is, this, you're supposed to entertain. Oh, right, 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 right. Okay. For whatever reason, he felt threatened or provoked and attacked the hikers and chased them off, ultimately killing them. Oh, and Yetis apparently can leave behind certain levels of radiation, according to quote-unquote Yeti experts. So that, that explains the radiation as well. So there you go. Unexplained no more. 
<laughs> you guys are you guys are very welcome. A very interesting and intriguing theory. Okay, this is this is a little more mm, plausible, I guess, slightly more plausible than the Yeti is the theory of infrasound. So basically, the perfect storm that night caused the winds to create a sound that sent the hikers into an intense state of panic. The piercing sound would have caused physical discomfort and could have led the group led to the group fleeing from the tent in the middle of the night. The theory explains that they fell down a ravine on the way to the tree line and then died from injuries and exposure? I, I don't know. I, I've never heard of this sound, this frequency. I know there's like theories of, a, or there's conspiracy theories rather, of a sound that the Cuban government, I believe it's in Cuba, is using on their people to make them sick and make them leave an area if they want to clear an area or something like that. I, 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 I'm a little fuzzy on the details. It's been a while since I've looked into it. But that's the only thing that remotely contrasts to this, to this piercing sound that would have caused physical discomfort. Um, I guess it would make them go insane, even. I don't know, but I, I don't put a lot of uh, I don't put a lot of stock in that one. There is also gravity fluctuation, ball lighting, shared hysteria, altercations with a stranger, and even the hiker's own stove offered up as an explanation. But of course, it wouldn't be a real strange and unexplained case without, you guessed it, aliens. I mean, come on, all the signs are there. Floating lights, unexplained deaths, radiation, but no other physical evidence left behind. Hmm. I mean, come on, you, you put this stuff together. Had to be aliens. Of course, there is one more. There is one more theory. My personal favorite, because I think it's what actually happened. Okay? I'm, and I'm no scientist, but I have watched so many YouTube videos on this, and it's got to be the way, okay? A more recent and plausible explanation may hold the answers to what actually happened that night in the Ural Mountains. If not an answer, I'd say it's damn near close to one, okay? It is very close. About as close to an explanation as we're ever going to get. If this didn't happen, this was at least part of it, okay? In 2019... Russia launched another investigation into the Dyatlov Pass incident with hopes of testing a new theory called the slab avalanche theory. A slab avalanche occurs when a slab of snow near the surface breaks away from a deeper layer of snow and it slides downhill in these big chunks. The group had ended up pitching their tent at the base of a mountain and digging a trench into the snow to pitch it. So basically, at the bottom of the mountain, I mean, it's, it's going up the mountain, though. It's not on flat ground. They're still on a pitch, a pitch of exactly 29 degrees, to be exact. And if you're unfamiliar, a pitch of less than 30 degrees, they say it is impossible to have an avalanche on a pitch less than 30 degrees. Scientists say that, okay? People who study avalanches say that. This pitch happened to be 29, so so many people would just rule it out. 29 degrees? No way it's an avalanche. Get the hell out of here with that. Okay, but just hear me out. So they dug it in the side of the snowpack on the side of a mountain. So as wind and things come down the mountain, the wind is not hitting them. It's going over it because they've dug down into it. There's lots of pictures online, guys. Check it out. It'll really help you visualize this. 
So it's believed the action of digging out the area loosened the top slab of snow. And that night, the high downward pressing winds kept packing snow on top of where they just dug out and led to the avalanche. The weight of the snow piling up over the hours was proven to be able to cause the types of injuries the hikers sustained. They would have been laying on their backs on the ground when this snow, these giant snow blocks, okay, because the top snow is packed. It just has this soft layer in between, okay, and these big chunks of snow would fall. And think about a giant block of ice or snow that's just, um, let's say, a meter by a meter cube. That would absolutely crush a human. You're talking 400, approximately 400 kilos, okay? That, that would absolutely break some ribs, crush some skulls if it fell on top of them. Two other studies done by American scientists supported this theory as well. And it does seem to give the most possible answers. The group was asleep when suddenly they were buried alive and were forced to use the only thing within reach to rip the tent open to escape the cold and only to be welcomed by even more cold. Right? And now all their stuff is buried under the snow. So naturally they're going to make their way down the hill. And they later died. Some of them, they took longer to die because they had internal injuries. They were passing one at a time. And as they were passing, they were just kept going a little further. And the ones that survived took from the ones that died as they needed to, just to get by. Even They were just living moment to moment. And you know, this is kind of dark, but even the body that was missing the tongue and the eyes, is it possible that maybe some of the surviving hikers fed on those soft tissues to stay alive? I don't know. I know it sounds terrible. It sounds gross, but you're talking dire times here. These, these, in 1959, like these people had nothing. Everything was buried under the snow. They were in their underwear. Some didn't even have shoes. It's just, it's insane. This whole, this whole predicament, but it seems a lot less mysterious when you consider this this small slide avalanche. Now, here's the biggest contradiction to the avalanche theory. Here's what you're going to hear. Oh, there's no signs of an avalanche. There's no signs. Well, first off, they showed up weeks later at the tent. Okay? Three weeks later. Lots of snow could have fallen at that time. Also, we're not talking about a full avalanche here. We're not talking about a goddamn like Ace Ventura, Wood Nature Calls, Avalanche, rushing down the fucking mountain. No, we're just talking about a small section that got dug out. And as the snow fell, all it did was fill in the big dugout area by the, by the, where the tent was dug out. Do you follow me? So there wouldn't be a lot of evidence. Also, this is on the side of a mountain that's just constantly high winds and blowing fresh powder onto this hole and over this tent and over the whole scene. It just, the avalanche theory, it just makes perfect sense. And I think uh, the only thing that it could be, bar the avalanche theory, is something that the Russian government is trying to cover up. Or maybe the Russian government caused this small avalanche with a missile explosion. Maybe the missiles weren't close enough to hurt the people. 
But how could they have possibly known that Nine Hikers was just on the other side of this mountain where they're doing these missile testing? The, the vibration, the, ex- the explosion, just the sound could have caused the avalanche. You know that. And it was already weak snow where they had dug out. That would give the Russian government a reason to hide this event and keep everything from us. And of course, we will never know for sure what happened in the mountains that night. And because there's no one left to tell us. But hopefully this new data can bring closure to those who seek it. Because I do believe this is an answer to the oh-so-mysterious Dyatlov Pass incident. But don't just take my word for it. Let's get one more opinion, right? Let's check in with Lorne this week in the Lorne's Synopsis. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren's synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here, here to give my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained, the infamous Dyatlov Pass incident from 1959 in Russia, where a group of nine experienced hikers took to the western mountains of Russia during winter to go on an expedition, which ended in them all perishing tragically and in very peculiar circumstances, which has spawned a ton of um, conspiracy theories, frankly, as to how they died. Um, some people say it was a Yeti attack. Um, others say that it was, uh, an alien abduction. Um, some say that it, it was the military. I initially thought that it was possibly one of one or two of the hikers going crazy and attacking the other hikers, um, while they slept, resulting in the others fleeing from the tent in the middle of the night in their underwear and ultimately dying of hypothermia out there. But upon uh, reading more about it and learning that several of the people that died in the group uh, suffered um, like skull fractures, they were basically crushed. I think there was three of them that were completely crushed um, in a means that uh, scientists have said that humans couldn't even crush a human the way that they were crushed. Um, And so I actually have, have come to believe the theory of the avalanche the avalanche theory, which has been tested. Um, there's been a few experts in the field of snow and avalanches that have gone out and kind of um, tested the theory out, set up a tent on a hill similarly. I know there was a lot of talk that the hill wasn't a big enough slope that they knew what they were doing. They cut into the slope, but the weather had gotten terrible in the days leading up to this incident. Um, there was heavy wind, um, heavy snowfall, and I, I think that uh, it's possible the snowpack, the situations of the snowpack, some loose snow under at the in the bottom layers, and then heavy ice uh, on top. If that broke free and came down on your tent, and you had dug into the side of the hill, to where you know you had six to eight feet of clearance and uh, above you above the tent, and then that heavy snow is coming down on you while you sleep. Um, whoever got hit just right by this it could it could crush you and that would cause the others to flee in their underwear um 
and I know there was also talk about uh, radiation being found on their clothes. Um, however, I did hear that several of the people in the group worked at a uh, they, they worked at a nuclear plant, so there would you would be exposed to some radiation um, and enough to stick to your clothes for sure. Um, so, yeah, my thoughts is uh, I mean, as fun as it is to think about all the different possibilities and conspiracies um, with respect to the victims, obviously I would say fun, but you know, it's, it's interesting to talk about what could have happened. I know there, there was several of the victims were missing eyeballs. That could have been a, a result of, you know, some sort of bird crows or something picking at them after they had perished. Um, I, I'm not sure, but, oh, the tongue thing too. Um, one of the victims was missing a tongue, had to have been some sort of scavenger, a bird or a wolf or something, who knows. Um, uh, but I, I tend to believe the the least crazy theory, that's usually my method, and um, the most believable theory to me is the avalanche. So that's my thoughts. Hope you guys enjoyed it. See you next week. All right, Lauren, thank you so much for that synopsis. I especially like that one because it agrees with me. Ha, <laughs> take that, everybody else. Me and Lauren totally agree on this one. I think it just makes sense. Um, regarding this case, I want to give a big thanks to Jake Tendo on Instagram. Jake, you know who you are. Thanks for this suggestion. I told you I would cover it. And guys, if you have a suggestion that you'd like to hear on the show, please, you can hit me up on Instagram, on Twitter, Facebook, whatever. Email me, all at Podcast. Any of those things. Go give me a like. Go give me a follow. If you want to keep up with when episodes are released, uh, Patreon things are released, that's a great thing to do. Go give me a follow on on Instagram, at Podcast, Sandu Podcast. Okay? Also on Twitter as well. But um, aside from supporting the show in that way, giving recommendations, uh, sharing, sharing things on p- social media and whatnot, there's other ways you can help the show. One is to leave a review on whatever podcast app you use, especially on iTunes. Apparently iTunes reviews mean the most. I don't know. I don't make the rules, right? Um, Also, guys, check out patreon.com slash podcast. You can get access to these free episodes early on Thursdays every week. And also, you get access to another show that I release every Monday called Strange Shorts. It's where I just... I try to find more obscure, strange cases, maybe not so, not always about murder or a missing person or, you know, uh, a a killer is never found. Uh, These are a little lighter cases typically, but definitely more on the strange side, uh, typically. They could be strange cases throughout history or all the way up to more recent things. I'm planning this next Monday, uh, this coming Monday, rather, will be something a little more fresh, a little more relevant. Um, It's an article I found. The article is done by Rolling Stone. And what they did was they interviewed a man by the name of Peter Vronsky. And if you're big into true crime, you've probably heard that name before. But he wrote a book called Sons of Cain. And it's called A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present. And it's very interesting. Um, In addition to the McDonald Triad... If you're unfamiliar, it's the three things that most serial killers have in common. Uh, what is it? Animal torture, bedwetting, and what is the third thing? Setting fires. That's what it is. Totally forgot. Um, 
But yeah, in addition to that, he finds other things that link certain serial killers together. And he also, in this article, he has a really good breakdown as to why there were so many serial killers in the 1970s up to 2000 and like almost none in the last 20 years, at least that we know of, right? He also breaks breaks a lot of myths. Um, and like I said, he doesn't go into full detail. I plan on reading this whole book. Uh, <laughs> this whole book? Oh, look at me. I read a whole book. No, but I, I plan on reading Sons of Cain. Um, and I'm going to report back to you guys on that. I cannot wait to get that book in my hands, honestly, because it's just some of the connections that he makes. They go a lot deeper than just, oh, well, technology wasn't as good then and things like that. And he also debunks a lot of a lot of things that we deem as facts about serial killers. Like, for instance, that most serial killers are white males. That's false. Um, well, actually... That's not entirely false, but it's more only like 51, 50 to 51% are white males, okay? But the reason that they are reported on more is because typically serial killers tend to stay within their race, especially if they're male. Um, so, therefore, unfortunately, the way that the world is and has been, especially dating back in the 70s, is that black serial killers, for instance, who were killing, had black victims or Hispanic victims or any people of color, their cases were not as publicized. They were not as sought after. Therefore, a lot of these killers got away with it. Um, case in point, Mr. Little that they just found, Samuel Little. Why do you think no one was on his trail? He confessed to 93 murders. And nobody even sniffed in his direction? Come on now. But it's just really interesting. And also, they he alludes to there being a lot more female serial killers uh, throughout that time period as well. Stating things, as, stating things like, a lot of these killers had other people do their dirty work. So the female killer is more of a sociopath, not as much of a psychopath as we would deem a lot of male serial killers who do the act themselves and usually up close and personal, right? So I'm getting way off, I'm getting way off track here, but anyways, that's kind of stuff I like to cover on strange shorts, just different things within the true crime world that may be interesting to my audience or that I think would be interesting. But again, guys, you can find that patreon.com slash S&U podcast, okay, for just three bucks a month. Um, we also have a $5 a month tier, and you get an exclusive Strange and Unexplained sticker in the mail, as well as, you know, helping me out a little bit more. I appreciate that very much, and we'll always be adding new content to Patreon as the show grows, okay? But that's a great way to help the show. Of course, guys, leave a review, but just downloading and listening and sharing the show with your friends by word of mouth is more than enough. Thank you guys so much for just your listenership, your support. And uh, if you want to show other people that you support Strange and Unexplained, check out our merch, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. And you guys can get access to all kinds of cool designs that I have made personally on there. Some designs are throwbacks um, and give respect to the early True Crime Guys days. And then I have uh, designs for True Crime Guys Productions, uh, designs for Strange and Unexplained, 
all sorts of things, guys. And again, that's truecrimeguys.threadless.com. And the links to everything that I mention and plug in every episode is below the description of this very episode as well. Can you imagine that? Also, my sources. So check down in the bottom and you guys can check out some of the videos that I watched about Russian scientists proving to you guys that the Dyatlov Pass mystery is not really that much of a mystery. Okay? It's really not. So there. I did it. I covered Dyatlov Pass. That's out of the way. That's that's one checkpoint done on my paranormal podcast. Hmm. All right, guys. I'll see you next week for another strange and unexplained case. Remember, be strange. Just don't be strangers, okay?